Well, good morning. I'm your fifth string preacher. I think if I've got the count right. So, I guess I wouldn't even make the practice squad if uh, if that's the case. Well, I'm wearing a suit today, and I don't see a wedding procession. So, I, I guess I am I am going to preach. Um, Tim, thank you for your introduction. I want to thank the pastors for inviting me and asking me to come and do this. It is a great honor and a privilege to stand in the pulpit of God in His church and to preach His Word. And I want you all to know as you listen that I don't take that lightly. So with that being said, let's jump right in. I'm going to read through Psalm 27 for us and then we'll pray. Psalm 27 Starting in verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. For He will hide me in His shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of His tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, And I will offer in His tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my Father... And my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord." Let's pray. Father, again, we thank You for the opportunity to come together in fellowship with one another for a singular purpose, to worship You. We acknowledge Your goodness to us, Your patience with us, and the love You've shown us in Your Son, Jesus. We pray now for the Holy Spirit to work to work in our hearts and minds to reveal the truths of Scripture to us in such a way that we're made more holy, but mostly we pray that you will be made much of in this service. We pray now for the preaching and the hearing of your word that it would be blessed and not returned void. To your glory, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, by the Spirit, Amen. Well, normally, if you start a sermon series... You give a big background and historical context of whatever book it is that you're going to be preaching in. And now, 
We're not starting a series in Psalms, especially not starting at Psalm 27. This is a one-off sermon, but I wanted to give a little bit of context because I think it'll help in guiding you to understand how I got where I'm going to end up in this sermon. So, the very first thing that you learn when preparing to preach a sermon in the Psalms is that you actually have a lot of freedom because there's not a really deep historical context that directs the way you have to interpret the Psalms. It doesn't mean that there's not a historical context behind uh, any given book in the Psalms. It's that that historical context is intentionally vague. And what I mean by that is, you can read through these Psalms, particularly this one, and you can gather that the psalmist, to some degree, is under siege, right? He's talking about war, he's talking about battle, he's talking about enemies. But what you're not going to be able to do, especially in this psalm, is determine, well, which particular battle is that, right? Which particular time in Scripture can we point to that's going to inform this psalm and help us understand it? That's actually intentional in most of the books of the Psalms because the Psalms are designed to be used in worship and to be able to be broadly applied. It doesn't mean that you can't go in the wrong direction with it. It doesn't mean that your application can't be in error. But it does give you that freedom. Now, personally, when uh, the pastors and I were talking about it, my first thought was, they were like, oh, look, you have all this freedom. And I was like, wait, but I have all this freedom. You know, Personally, I like the text to really guide me through step by step and, and just let me know exactly what I have to preach. But I soldiered on, and this is, this is what, we, what we've come to. So the one thing I want you to note about the historical context of this psalm is the authorship. And if you look at the very top, right underneath the title, you see that this psalm is of who? David, right? This psalm is of David. So I want you to keep that in mind. That's going to come into play. It's going to factor big in how we understand this here uh, in just a little bit. The main question I want to ask and want to seek to answer in the sermon today is, how do we understand this psalm in light of Jesus? So keep that question in the back of your mind. That's where we're going to head. So, we're going to start by looking at verse 4. And get ready because we're going to camp out on verse 4. And everything is pretty much going to point to verse 4. Either it's going to point to verse 4, or everything else in this psalm and this sermon is going to flow out of verse 4. So I'm telling you up front, verse 4 is the key. I guess that's some kind of spoiler, um, but that's okay. Hang with me. Alright, verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after Stop. Okay, we're not even going to read all of verse 4 right now. Just that little snippet. This is an incredibly significant verse in all of Scripture. This statement is unlike any other numeric statement in Scripture. This idea of the one thing. Okay? It's a huge point of emphasis for the author, for David, here. The way we want to understand this is not just as one thing, but as the only thing. So what he's saying here is, one thing have I asked, and this is the only thing that really matters. It is a single-minded affection for our author. And we're going to see that theme 
throughout the sermon. In fact, there are a couple of other places in Scripture where we do see this, and I want to turn to, to one of them now. So hop with me over to the book of Luke, chapter 10. Alright, Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 38. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, Do you not care that my sister has left me to serve all alone? Tell her then to help me. Okay, so imagine this scene. Martha runs into Jesus. She invites Jesus into her house. This is Jesus, right? Jesus is sitting there and teaching, and Martha is making herself busy uh, about the things of the house. Maybe she's cleaning up after dinner. Maybe she's topping off everybody's drink. Uh, we don't know specifically what she's doing, but we do know that what she's doing is she is serving. Okay, And she's frustrated. Why is she frustrated? She's frustrated because her sister is not helping her. right? And in this context, the women should have been about the serving. right? So Mary should have been up and helping Martha, but she is sitting at Jesus' feet captivated by his teaching and listening to what he has to say. And this frustrates Martha greatly. Now, if you're like me, type A and a little OCD, my wife might say it's more than a little, then you get this. You're like, oh, I mean, well, there were dishes to be done. I mean, the counters needed to be wiped off and there are plates to be put away. If any of you have ever been to my house, we're hosting a party, you've probably seen this. I'm like kind of talking over my shoulder to everybody while I'm, while I'm cleaning up. I don't know what it is. I can't handle it. So I get this. Like I'm reading this first and I'm like, I get this compulsion that she has. But in contrast to Martha, Mary has a single-minded affection and focus on who? On Jesus. That's a good thing to be focused on. Jesus, the Son of God, is right there in her house. And Martha is worried about other things. So if we continue on in the in the remaining verses in this little passage here, you see Jesus tells her in verse 41, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Mary has chosen this one thing. She has this single-minded affection and focus that her sister doesn't. Another place in Scripture, and you don't need to turn there, I'm just going to briefly paraphrase it, that you see this is in John chapter 12. You have a very, very similar setting there. Martha and Mary are both there. It tells us in the verse that Martha is serving, right? And Mary comes in and she does what? She takes a really expensive bottle of perfume and she breaks it open and she puts it on Jesus' feet to wash His feet with this expensive perfume. The Scripture tells us that this perfume was worth about one year's wages. Imagine taking what you make in one year and spending it on a bottle of perfume and then that bottle of perfume is taken and dumped on someone's 
feet. You gotta remember, they walked around on dirt roads, uh, wearing sandals where camels did their business, right? And it was dirty and muddy. So not just any feet, but disgusting, smelly, stinky feet. It probably needed the perfume in that sense. But imagine, you take a year's salary, you put it on someone's feet. That's what Mary did. And who speaks up? Judas, right? That's red flag number one. Anytime Judas objects to something, you should probably immediately think, I need to go in the opposite direction. Okay? So Judas steps up and he says, wait a second, what a waste. We could have taken this and we could have sold it and we could have fed the poor. Right? It's a year's worth of wages. That would have fed a lot of people. Now, i got to be honest with you. I used to, up until about a couple of years ago, I would read this passage and I would sympathize with Judas. And I knew I wasn't supposed to, right? Like I'm reading it and I'm like, something's not right here. I know I'm not supposed to be in Judas's corner, but he has a good point, right? The Scripture goes on to tell us that he didn't really want the money to feed the poor, right? He was the treasurer and he was pilfering the treasury. But let's just say that John or Peter would have been the one to step up and make this point. Would Jesus' response have been any different? Is the only reason that he responds the way he does by scolding Judah, Judas and commending Mary? Is, is, would it have been any different if it wouldn't have been someone who's trying to steal money? The answer to the question is no. And the reason why is that Mary, again, has this singular focus on who? On Jesus. On glorifying Jesus. And while feeding the poor is a good thing, glorifying the Lord is significantly better. So, Mary gets it and Martha doesn't. And again, Mary gets it and Judas really doesn't. Okay, She has this single-minded affection for the one thing. So, what is the one thing? The one thing that David mentions back in Psalm 27. Verse 4. Again, one thing I've asked of the Lord that I will seek after. What is it? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. So to dwell in the house of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. So, the answer to this question, what I'm going to submit to you, is that the answer to this question is a little deeper than just what I, than what I just read. I'm going to submit to you that the answer to this question is what it has been for the last 2,000 years, and it's what it was thousands of years before that. The answer to the question of what is this one thing, this singular focus, this singular, single-minded affection, the answer to that question is, it is Jesus. Right? And we say, wait a second. David, right? Psalm 27, that's the Old Testament. So this was way before Jesus ever came on earth. But if we understand what David is talking about here, and we understand again the context of the psalm allows for a broader application, and don't worry, I'm going to tighten this up a little more as we go along, we understand that when he's talking about the house of the Lord and he's talking about the temple, he is talking about Jesus. 
Because Jesus, when you hear temple, think Jesus, right? Jesus is the new temple that's prophesied elsewhere in the Old Testament. In John 2, Jesus refers to His body as the temple. So the temple was the place where God would come and make His presence manifest, right? We've been studying in Sunday school, we've been studying theology, we talked about omnipresence. And this is the general presence of God, that He is everywhere. His manifest presence is like a a special, more concentrated type of His presence. And He would make Himself present, manifest in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. Also of note here, David's talking about the temple. Was the temple built in David's day? No. The answer to the question is no. So I think that that's significant and leading as well. Jesus is the literal incarnation of God. He is God in the flesh. So Jesus is God manifest in a man. So the question that we have to ask, I think an important question to ask here is, so did David believe in Jesus? What what did he believe in? I'm telling you that what he's talking about here is Jesus. Well, what did he believe in? And to answer that question, most of you probably know where I'm going to turn. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to bounce around a little bit through the verses here. But chapter 11, verses 1 and 2 to start out. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. So a particular interest is this people of old comment. Who is he talking about? The author of Hebrews goes on throughout the rest of this chapter to tell us. He gives lots of examples. Abel, Abraham, Moses. And he gives very specific ways that they exhibited this faith in assurance of things hoped for and this conviction of things not yet seen. In fact, we we have a name for this chapter. We often call it the Hall of Faith or I like to think of it as the, the Faith Hall of Fame, right? Because we get this laundry list of Old Testament Bible uh, characters, folks who lived out this faith, though they didn't exactly know what it was that they had faith in. All of these people preceded Christ on earth, but the author of Hebrews is making this connection here for us between Christ and that thing that they had faith in. Christ is the object of that faith, even when it was, even when He was unseen to them. So, what about David? Well, David gets listed. Um, it's actually kind of funny. He gets listed in verse 32. If you look there. In verse 32, the author tells us, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David and Samuel and the prophets. So, <laughs> the author of Hebrews gives basically a, we don't have time to cover that. Let's move on. But, The point is, he's assumed by the example that he's given with all of the other folks that they're all about the same thing. The thing in which they had faith, the thing that they were looking forward to was Jesus. And so David had faith 
in what was yet to come. In verse 13 and 14, it tells us here in Hebrews 11, that all these folks died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Jesus is the object of that faith, and Jesus is that homeland. And that's precisely what they were moving towards and what they had faith in. So, what is the one thing? The ultimate answer to that question is, Jesus is the one thing. Okay, so, we've been going for a little while here. We've camped out in verse 4. What about the other 13 verses in the chapter. Well, let's let's hit some of the themes and some of the elements uh, in those verses, and let's talk about everything else uh, here that David talks about. So, back to Psalm twenty-seven. I think we're done jumping around, so you can you can rest there for a little while. All right. So, we're going to start out by saying everything else falls to the wayside in light of the one thing. But he mentions a lot of other things here, right? So it. Uh, he mentions in verse 1, he mentions salvation. The Lord is my light and my salvation. In verse uh, 2 and verse 5, he mentions refuge from his enemies. In verse 3 and 6, he expresses confidence that the Lord will give him victory. But what I'm submitting to you is that all of this the faith in the salvation, the confidence that he has, it all stems from what is ultimately the object of his hope and affection in verse 4. And we see this uh, in the, the other passages that we talked about, in Luke 10 and John 12. It's not that uh, serving is a bad thing. Martha was serving, right? We see throughout Scripture that serving is a good thing. But not when compared to the pursuit of that one thing, of Christ. And also, feeding the poor is a very good thing. We're commended throughout Scripture to feed the poor. But when you compare it to dwelling in Jesus, there is no comparison. Everything falls to the wayside when compared to this one thing. Okay, so oftentimes we make substitutes to fill in for this one thing in our life. Make absolutely no mistake that every person in this room, in this country, on this planet, is made to worship. And if we don't worship what we are supposed to worship, we will worship something else. It might be your spouse. It might be your kids, so your family. It might be your career. It might be yourself. And in some cases, it might even be your church. The one that I think is the best example of all of this is sports. A lot of times we worship our sports teams. And if you've ever, if you have any doubt about this, then you've never been to a major sporting event. Go to a major sporting event, go to a Duke or Carolina game, and look at all the people there who are losing their minds in this basketball arena. They got their they got their faces painted, they're screaming at the top of their lungs. Their very well-being and excitement is tied up 
in this game and in this team. Now, I want to be careful here because I think sports fandom is a great thing. I am literally uh, a stockholder of the Green Bay Packers, right? So I'm a little nutty when it comes to my football team. I get it. But let's just talk about this practically. If I were to worship the Green Bay Packers, they've won 13 championships, more than any other team in the NFL, in the history of the NFL. But the team is like, what is it, 2013? So the team's like 96 years old. Okay? So they've won 13 championships out of 96 years. So that's like 15% of the time. How disappointed are you going to be if 15% of the time that object of your affection and worship reaches its culmination, right? And reaches that pinnacle. Um, I'm not even going to address Carolina fans. That, that would just be sad. Um, it's a zero. It's a goose egg on the percentage there. But the idea is if we put our faith and our confidence in anything less than what we should, we are constantly going to be disappointed. Even when that thing does as well as it can be expected to do, we are going to be disappointed. So, what about godly things? And I think this gets us back to the psalm. And I think this is probably the most interesting application in this text. What about all of the wonderful godly things that David says here in the text? In verse 1, The Lord is His salvation. Right? So, we've got, as we already mentioned in verses 2 and 5, we've got refuge. And in verses 3 and 6, we've got victory. So we've got salvation, refuge, and victory. These are all good things, right? Nothing wrong with David praising God for these things. But my question is, is that enough? Right? So if we take verse 4 and we pluck it out of Psalm 27, and we're left with all these second-tier things salvation and refuge and victory over our enemies, is that enough? Tim asks this question all the time, and I think it's very helpful, and it's, very, uh, it's a good way of illustrating this point. He asks this question, he says, if you go to heaven and Jesus isn't there, will you be satisfied with that? If you go to heaven and Jesus isn't there, will you be satisfied It should be a rhetorical question. And the way that I'm asking it should tell you the answer to that question is an emphatic no. You should not be satisfied if Jesus Jesus isn't there. And you say, well, that's obvious. Yeah, but think about this for a second. What if we can go to heaven and we can receive all the secondary benefits that we get in Christ, like eternal life, freedom from our sins, a resurrected body, Creation being restored. What if we can get all of those things, but Jesus isn't there? Would it be enough? Would salvation by itself be enough? The answer to that question is absolutely not. When what Jesus provides us is loved more than Jesus Himself, then we've got a problem. Okay? There are a couple of really good examples of this uh, in evangelicalism. I quote that because I wouldn't classify some of these folks uh, as legit evangelicals. But think of 
the prosperity gospel. I'm not going to name any names, but you can go look up prosperity gospel on Google and it'll give you a laundry list of folks. If you don't know what that is, let let me kind of give you an overview of the prosperity gospel. It's the idea, the best way to think of it is that Jesus is like a genie in a magic lamp. And when you do what you're supposed to, whether that be in faithfulness or obedience, uh, ethically, it's like rubbing that lamp. And Jesus pops out and says, what can I get you? Right? That's what the prosperity gospel is all about. You do this, Jesus is going to provide that. Sometimes it's really sinister, like some guy on TV saying, if you send me money, you're going to be healed. Or if you send me money, you're going to get a big house. Sometimes it's slightly less sinister than that to say, if you're faithful in your walk with the Lord, then the Lord is going to do X. Um, maybe He's going to give you a, a Cadillac Escalade. I don't, I don't know why I always pick on that car. Something about hip-hop culture. I don't know. Everybody has one. I, whatever. It's like, the, it's like the, just the, the, the perfect illustration of bling. So, anyway. <laughs> don't Google that. Uh, so, it's this idea that you're going, to, you're going to do something and Jesus is going to do something uh, in turn. This is extremely dangerous but in a relatively shallow way, right? So we can look at this, I hope, as, uh, as believers, and we can say, no, that's not legit. Now, I say we, and, and I'm, I, I, present company excluded, but in the broader culture, these folks who preach this message have a lot of followers. And even more than that, what's even more sad about it is, in third world countries... The prosperity gospel is huge. People being, are being led away from Jesus and to Satan with this all day long. Okay, so the prosperity gospel. Now, evangelicalism in general, I think sometimes misses this as well. It's slightly less shallow. It's equally dangerous. Maybe even more dangerous because it's a little more subtle. Okay, so if you remove verse 4, And the only thing you focus on is salvation. This is what you're doing, right? You're still focusing on something lesser than the ultimate pinnacle, the ultimate uh, object of your faith. You're focusing on what Jesus can give you rather than on who Jesus is and rather than on Jesus Himself. So this salvation is a less shallow thing to put your faith in, right? But... It's still just as dangerous as, say, the Escalade. Okay? Because salvation is not your end goal. Jesus is not a means to salvation. Salvation is a means to us as believers in Christ glorifying God. It's exactly the opposite. But oftentimes, we think of salvation as the end goal. Right? That's what we're all about. We get professions of faith of people who pray for salvation and then they disappear from the church and from the faith. Why does that happen? Because if your faith and hope is in something that is less than the thing that fully satisfies, you're not going to be able to stick with it. You're not going to be able to keep your faith in that because it's not the appropriate object of your faith. Tim's uh, question, if you get to heaven and Jesus isn't there, are you going to be satisfied? It's funny, I was already thinking of including that in the sermon when this week I saw that uh, Pastor John Piper, one of my heroes in the faith, 
tweeted something very similar, but a little more blunt and with a little more teeth. He said, People who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. And say that again. People who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. His point is, if your object of the object of your faith is heaven or what you're going to get when you're there, you're not going to make it. Because that's not what it's all about. Okay. So, <laughs> moving on. Verse 10. Let's look at verse 10 really quickly. This is, uh, this is an interesting one because it seems like uh, an outlier in the, in, the, in the passage, when in reality it, it's, it's, it illustrates the broader point that I've been getting after very, very well. Verse 10. David says, For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Okay. By all accounts, Jesse, David's dad, was a good dad. They have overlooked him when Samuel came looking for a king, but it's alright. Give him the benefit of the doubt. He was the youngest, the smallest, right? By all accounts, we don't have any reason to think that Jesse was a bad father, that Jesse actually abandon David here. So what's the point? It's a, it's a hypothetical. He's saying, in this world, the people who sh- we should be able to count on the most, we think of our mother and father, even if they leave, that one thing is still there. That's not what I'm ultimately about. And this just illustrates even further the point of putting our faith in the right Object Now, for some of us who have good parents, this is hard to resonate with. For those of us who have bad parents, for those of us when the father analogy comes out in a sermon and we cringe, this is going to really hit home. Because for those who have been abandoned or abused by their parents, this makes perfect sense to you. But the point is, even when that thing in the world that should be your strongest foundation, even when that thing is not there, the one thing that he's asking for, the one true foundation and object of his faith, is still there. Everything else falls by the wayside. So, In conclusion, Christianity is about one thing. That one thing is our single-minded affection. And that affection should be aimed at loving and dwelling in Jesus. Again, if you want Jesus just for His salvation or what He can give you, It'd be like getting married for the tax benefits. Right? Amber and I celebrated our 11-year anniversary yesterday, and I put on the card, thanks for the savings. Right? No, I didn't. She would have torn that up. Twelve Year 12 would have been tough to get to, right? Jesus is the same way. If you're after Him for what He gives you, you're not after Him. Right? It doesn't work. 
So He should be our single-minded affection. Jesus. Loving and dwelling in Jesus. And thirdly, nothing else matters compared to this. Everything else falls by the wayside. Let me pray for us. Father, we pray that we would love and cherish Your Son, Jesus. We confess to You that we often sin in putting other things between ourselves and Jesus. We pray that we would learn from Your Word the importance of having a single-minded affection. We pray that we would rejoice in the benefit that He provides by cleansing us of our sins and saving us, but never so much that we would fail to rejoice in Jesus Himself. Father, let us proclaim that what we want, all we want, is Jesus. It's to You, Father, that we pray. In Jesus' name, by the Spirit. Amen.